Welcome to the Center for Medical Simulations Book Club. This is Janice Palaganis, and it is my pleasure to introduce Susie Cardong Edgren, my friend, longtime colleague, and now faculty for CMS, who will be leading us in this book club episode. Susie is the past RISE Center Director at Robert Morris University, currently on an excited move to Texas and new opportunities. You may know Susie as the past editor in chief of Clinical Simulation and Nursing, which is the official journal of Anaxal, the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning. I have respected and long admired Susie for her work in simulation. I've learned a lot from her over the years, and I'm excited that we can have her here today to get us thinking about diversity. Susie. Thank you so much. And I'd like to acknowledge the people that are on the book club today. And those include James. Hello. And Jenny. Hi, this is Jenny Rudolph. And Grace. Hi, this is Grace Ng. And? Hello, Ann Mullen here. And Janice Palaganis, of course. Okay, so I was talking with one of my buddies. Her name is Leanne Horsley at South Dakota State University about working in interprofessional education. And I was interviewing her and asking her, what is the best resource that you've ever found? What is the thing that really appealed to you the most? And she said, oh, oh, by far, this book, The Loudest Duck. And I said, really, really, tell me about it. So she gave me a little insight and I said, oh, that sounds like something I should read. And I will give just a tiny little overview at the, at the beginning here and then tell you what I thought was really interesting about it. Loudest Duck is a proverb. You don't really want to be the one that speaks out because you're going to get shot. And this is really true. Uh, both my uh, husband and I are hunters. And when you go out, if you're shooting prairie dogs, it's, there's the one prairie dog that jumps up and barks and lets everybody know there are people in the area. There are people. And that's the one you shoot first. So <laughs> this is actually true in real life. And in the United States, we are opposite, exactly the opposite in that we say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, the one who complains the most, gets the most attention, is going to get probably what they want, uh, probably not get shot. As you start reading the book, what this is really about, as I was reading it, and I understood what Leanne liked about it, was that it talks about when you are at the top of a hierarchy, you can often be like the elephant, that you have moved ahead and any other little critter around you has learned to deal with dealing with you. And you as the elephant are not necessarily aware that you're crushing things left and right as you're moving through the, uh, the jungle, through the veldt, through whatever. The rest of us, little mice, little creatures, have had to learn to manipulate around the giant. And in this case, she's referring to medicine, hierarchy, physicians, and the rest of us who play a part in healthcare but are not the physician brain. I am curious about how other people perceive that and have you had that experience in your own life? So who wants to be the first prairie dog to come up over the hill and get shot here? <laughs> I was hesitating there for a second, Susie. This is Jenny because I was thinking about my role as an elephant inadvertently stomping on things. And I think I'm probably at greater risk generally for being an elephant inadvertently stomping on things. Mm -hmm. 
because of coming from a white educated academic family where seminar style dinner was the normal thing to do. And so if you didn't speak up and argue your point at dinner, nobody was going to listen to you for sure. And so we were rewarded for sticking our heads up. And I think that has translated uh, perhaps this very moment being an example of my jumping in and sharing my opinion early and trying to shape the discourse. I think I've had to really learn over the years that that can have a downside. So I love that you're saying this, Jenny, because I, by contrast, I think I hit many marks of the mouse (laughs) from my ethnic background, also uh, being tiny and short, and and, uh, the culture tends to be silent and submissive. The Filipino culture? The Filipino culture, the way I've been raised, respecting the elephant, highly respecting the elephant, and living life knowing exactly what the elephant's doing in ways where you won't get stepped on. And it's just been interesting because I, I have learned, you know, very closely what the behaviors are of elephants. And at the same time, I think we're all elephants and mice in different situations, especially with IPE. This is something that if you are not aware of it as a physician, you don't know how many, I wouldn't call them privileges, but things are done that smooth life for you. A great example I experience a lot, especially coming from the West, is that when clinical sites are needed, if you have a school that has a unique clinical sites for med school interns, they always get first pick. If you are a nurse practitioner program, uh, if there was no medical school around, you were it, people were delighted to have you. But as soon as a medical school moves in, who would you want if, if you have a choice between nurse practitioners who may not necessarily pay for clinical sites or interns, residents who will be paying for those sites and need that kind of training more, everybody else gets moved out of the way. So I have been at places over and over again where that exact scenario has played out. Medicine has no idea that this is happening. And why should they? They're, they come in, they ask for things. Everybody wants them. They're needed. Everybody else moves out of the way. So the little mice have to scurry away and find other ways to deal with things. So I think that that has been my closest experience with that dealing in academia. I wonder how other people have experienced it. Maybe not at the programmatic level necessarily, but I think as someone who works more on the operations side of our healthcare organization, you definitely see that in the sense that you are responsible for managing folks who are busy doing other big important things in a way that they don't necessarily understand that they're being managed, which is to say you're doing a lot of soft labor or, you know, what someone might call like emotional labor in making sure that you're presenting things to people and stakeholders in a way that they are willing to put in the time. Working on a busy clinical inpatient hospital unit, often the unit coordinator or the secretary is one of the most powerful people in the place because that's the person who's really at the hub of everything and keeps everything working. If that person steps away for 10 minutes, it's really evident that that person's contribution is really important, even more so than you know a senior nurse or a manager or a physician. That person who really has their finger on the pulse of the entire unit can have a lot of power. Grace, you have anything you want to throw in? To be honest, when I first picked up this book, I was like, oh, another book on diversity. But I really appreciated the nuanced view here. And I think what I'm 
also seeing in the workplace. Right now, I'm a nurse working in a school of medicine. So I think I see this dynamic pretty frequently, especially in meetings. You know, there's an unspoken dynamic about who speaks first, who can interrupt, and who can interrupt the interruption and speak again. So I think those things really play out a million times on a daily basis that I see. Well, I get a sense that I'm a mouse in many ways, but I think the elephant don't really see it. And if they do, they might think that that's just the norm and that's how things are. So I don't know if there's great incentive to change as the author, you know, is advocating for in this book. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was curious about because as this IPE gets to be a really big thing, we are deliberately asking people who are at the top of the hierarchy to let go and to invite critique and to ask for feedback. CMS is a great example of this, is that we're asking people to say, if you see me screwing up, please tell me. Please, if you see something, say something. And that has not been the norm for a lot of places. It certainly still isn't even today. And so we're almost really going against the grain. And yet when people come there, they hear that it's going to be interprofessional. And I don't know, I heard some people say the last time I was there for a class, I've never worked with nurses who acted like this. I wonder if you have heard that too, or if you've had experiences where people have said, I I didn't know that this was even possible. What are your thoughts? Susie, can I just clarify when they said... uh... I've never worked with nurses who acted like this. Uh, were they referring to nurses speaking up or what was nurses speaking up? Great, great point. Thanks for yeah. clarification. Speaking up like this and being um, assertive in a discussion. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think about who speaks up and when they speak up and how welcome that is or not welcome that is has been informed a bit by uh, some of my reading of Amy Edmondson's recent work, both in her book, The Fearless Organization, and teaming. Regarding this changing norm of can we all speak up in an interprofessional team and what are the costs, one of the things that Amy Edmondson wrote about in teaming that I think is a possibly compelling piercing change agent for the elephants who are not used to being spoken up to is her point that as we use more and more more ad hoc teams, so the teams come together in, in unexpected ways, what she argues is diversity of position. So if somebody's on the team and I'm having to manage a difficult situation and there's a perfusionist in the room who I don't really know, and the patient is crashing over onto bypass, her point is the perfusionist has unique information that nobody else has and is absolutely crucial to the process. And when people in power recognize that that diverse perspective is completely necessary to the success of the overall team, that is sometimes the first time they've realized it's important to get another perspective. And so it's out of necessity rather than principle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that an interesting starting point for getting people to pay attention to other perspectives. That is, you sort of start developing an addiction to other perspectives when it's going to save your derriere in a difficult situation. 
I tend to do this where I sort of overanalyze me- the metaphors that people are using. But so in terms of this elephant metaphor, I feel like you end up with three categories that that individual can fall into. The first one being elephants aren't aware that they're elephants. They just are. An elephant doesn't know the difference between an elephant and a mouse. It's just like, I'm an elephant. I'm walking through the wood. There's nothing under my feet. For- I'm just doing my thing. The second version is an elephant that likes is aware of what an elephant is but likes it which is to say i have power here and i revel in the fact that i'm the one in power and that other people have to scurry around me which is maybe the most toxic version of this and then the third version is i'm an elephant i'm aware that i'm an elephant but i'm really trying not to step on you guys i swear (laughs) well said well said i like i like your perspective there so if we're trying to move from the two versions of the elephant and move towards the third, which is really what IPE is all about, I think. How are we doing? Are you feeling like CMS is making a dent? And when you're out and about, what are you, what, what are you picking up in, the, in the, uh, the universe these days on this very important topic? When it comes to IPE, the, the very value of it is, the, is also the most challenging part of it, which is that diversity and diverse perspectives. And I think if left alone, I know we're, we're on the chapter of the, the elephant in the mouse. There's also a chapter that talks about Noah's Ark and bringing in different mm-hmm. types of people. And, and naturally, indefinitely, we will clash because we don't really understand the other perspectives and we don't seek to understand the differences either. And so it does take some leadership to facilitate working together to appreciate those differences and how to work together. So I think of when I was reading The Elephant and the Mouse, I was thinking of Tom and Jerry <laughs> and how they're always, you know, trying to undercut each other and outsmart each other. They're, they're at play, but when you start to appreciate and know each other's differences and then use them together, you can definitely create more. Yeah, and to, to speak to what Jenny was saying, it seems like the, the, the gear that has to be turned is a self-awareness gear, where you realize that there are other perspectives and you see value in them. And so as Jenny was saying, you know, the moment where you suddenly need the perfusionist's input is the moment where you realize that someone has information or skills or perspective that you don't have. And you need it in order to do whatever it is you're trying to do. Maybe that's a light bulb moment where you realize that everybody in the room actually has that, not just you and this one other person. It, it seems like the interprofessional sim or the interprofessional exercise is a way to hopefully stimulate that internal moment where you go from thinking, I have all the information and I'm in charge and people just sort of need to do my thing to saying, okay, I actually, I don't have all the information. I need you to help me, even if I'm the event manager here. I need you to speak up with what you see and, and what you hear. One of the things that I'm seeing in the interprofessional collaboration world is through the lens of the operating room teams course that we run at Massachusetts General Hospital with surgeons, anesthesiologists, scrub techs, circulating nurse, and occasionally pharmacy and respiratory therapy. One of the really interesting things about what you're asking is the journey to different mental models about including diverse points of view. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to give two examples. So one is an explicit part of the curriculum is speaking up. And that's because we're trying to create a context where if somebody sees something or knows something in the room that's important to the management of a massive hemorrhage or a cardiac event, 
that that information gets shared across the team. In debriefing, we talk about that a bit. And one of the interesting things that's come up over and over again in the briefing is the tension between not enough speaking up and too much speaking up. One of the critiques is our hospital is moving toward, you know, everybody's opinion counts and everybody should speak up. But the problem there is then there are certain moments during the procedure or the operation where it's very distracting for there to be a lot of noise for certain providers. So for example, during induction for the anesthesiologist or emergence or getting on top of volume, they're doing a bunch of things. And if a lot of people are talking to them, it's hard for them to concentrate or similarly for the surgeon. So there was a kind of tension in the room in the debriefing about feeling like it was politically correct to allow a lot of speaking up, but that that was also causing some problems. That's a middle point in my view on this journey. And what is really interesting is that the more advanced teams or the teams who have sort of sorted this out in a way have achieved something that I think Jody Hoffer-Gattel would call shared knowledge about each other's tasks. And that is they know when to shut up because somebody's mm-hmm. at a really tough part of their procedure and they know when to speak up. And mm-hmm. so it's not just about being empowered. It's about this milieu and context and, and caring about each other's tasks, which to me is sort of like the next level in the video game of how do we get even better at including each other's perspectives. Jenny, I find that super, super interesting because I think maybe it speaks to a lack of nuance potentially in some of the training that people are getting on speaking up, particularly speaking up training where it's the real focus is just like, speak up, speak up, speak up, speak up, speak up. You have to do it. You have to do it all the time. You have to do it this way. In the courses that we've been working on here and that Janice has been working on, you know, one of the first things in some of these conversations is the agreement to have a conversation. And one of the things we say, for example, in our feedback conversations is, is this a good time for us to talk about this? If the feeling is that people are in the middle of complex procedures that require a lot of concentration and people are sort of speaking up at them without the sort of consent to have a conversation right. and the acknowledgement to that this is a good time for us to be able to do this. Obviously, if it's a emergent thing that it's like, if we don't deal with this in the next 10 seconds, we have a real problem then that's a little bit different. But if it's something like, hey, I'm seeing this and I, I want to just check in, you also sort of have to have that nuance of, but actually I'm doing something really important right now. So I need to be able to tell you, can you come back to me in 15 seconds and speak up again? What you're really describing, what both James and Jenny you're talking about is, is when you first start off in interprofessional education, a lot of times it's like parallel play. We're in the OR together, we're doing our jobs, but we still don't understand I'm doing my job as a nurse, you're doing your job as a physician, uh, you're doing your job as a respiratory person, whatever. We're, we're playing together, but we still don't understand interprofessional education. And so what you really described, Jenny, beautifully was, I have to understand what you're actually doing and what your job is and where I am value added and where I am distracting. And so that would be the ultimate, to me, the nirvana of interprofessional education is when a team really does understand when to speak up, when not. So I, I, I think that really is something to strive for. And I think that also is, is, the, is fundamental to moving everyone into that third type of elephant that James is talking about. Because, you know, one of the quotes from the book that I wrote down is, 
the things we say unconsciously have the potential to get us and others into the most amount of trouble in the least amount of time. And so we've been talking a lot about speaking, yet it's the nonverbals that get us into trouble and, and those leak. And, uh, you know, as we talk about in our course, getting to a place where you can understand or empathize with, with other members in your team, you'll be able to leak that, I think, as well. Is there anything else that should be said on this particular topic right here? Because I had one other thing I thought was kind of interesting that we, we could talk about from the book. Maybe I'll just add one concept that came to me around the elephant metaphor, and then maybe we can wrap it up, Susie, as you wish. When I was reading about the dominant group, which is what the author refers to frequently as as being somewhat unaware of its privilege and its the dominant group in organizations often believe the organization to be entirely a meritocracy and they have risen to the top because of their good whatever. And so I think that's sort of the example, a little bit of the unaware elephant. What that reminded me of, and I think could be helpful to us as we go forward in thinking about how do we include multiple perspectives, is the social cognition concept of the false consensus effect, which is that I assume that other people agree with me and see the world similarly as I do. And I'm unaware that I have that assumption. So part of what I think the author and the book are trying to do is pierce our unexamined feeling that the world is as we see it. And that one of the first big steps in becoming an aware elephant is just the idea that I might be missing something. That same concept that I know it as the Abilene paradox, <laughs> which is somebody says, this is where we want to go. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, they think no, I don't really want to go there, but OK, I'll go. Then we get there. Everybody's pissing and moaning because they went there and they say, well, I didn't really want to come here. Well, I didn't want to come here either. Well, how come we're here? Well, because nobody said anything. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that. That can happen if people don't speak up. The other quote that I thought was pretty interesting in the book, uh, there were many, but this one I think is, is worthy of this group, is that uh, I will just read this little piece. Linda Hill of the Harvard Business Group said that those who are mentored and given feedback and challenged uh, and mentored over time go much further and perform much better than those not given feedback, even if two folks start at the same place with the same skill set within a five-year period. So being able to feel comfortable enough, be you mouse or elephant, being able to give each other feedback in the diverse roles that we come with will move us further along. I wonder if anybody's had that experience of having really good mentorship that has helped them move along. Or as for me, now I'm getting it in later life. I'm so glad I finally got it, but I am getting fabulous mentorship and wonderful feedback from you, Jenny, in, in my new role, and you, Janice, in my new role, and you, Anne, in my new role. And Grace, I'm sure you would if we'd been together, but it, you have really made an art form of giving this feedback and making it okay to ask for it and hear it in a way that one can hear it. How has that come to be and what are your experiences with that? Well, I can definitely speak because it's this is the number one reason that brought me to CMS, the mentorship and the very transparent, open feedback environment. I have seen the benefits of that, not only in simulation, but in my own personal life of 
being given assignments that can stretch and challenge a person, getting that immediate feedback, and then getting the mentorship on how to be better. And I think Jenny goes around the world talking about high regard, high respect, and high standards, and you know how, how to mentor in that way where you can grow people. And that's so much at play at CMS. And I feel like I've learned it experientially. I um, really feel like in a way, the lifeblood for me of work is authentically trying to do the things that we teach about, such as holding high standards and high regard, or such as if Janice gives me some spicy feedback, you know, I'm going to react defensively, just like the average duck but how do I reset myself and how do I get myself in a place to do that? And thinking about that in terms of diversity and inclusion, I think one of the tricky things for someone like me, who's an executive director and has some formal authority is as much as I may think I'm open to feedback, as much as I may invite feedback, I still have this position power that potentially could uh, limit people's willingness to give feedback and or blind me to really obvious things that that I should be perceiving as feedback, but I'm not. What intrigued me about the the loudest duck book was trying to up my game in some way because I have formal position authority around being aware of what I might not be aware of. And James Lipshaw, who's on the call, and I work together closely uh, frequently, and uh, James, I think one of the things that I really like about working with you and also Tony Dancel is uh, you have a very different perspective on the work that you and I do together and occasionally will share your perspective on things with me in a way that you know might land on me with some difficulty because I feel like, whoa, how did I miss that? Or wow, I'm really sad that landed on you badly, James. Yet you do find the courage to do that. And so I value that hugely. And I'm not sure how you accomplished that. Well, it's it's funny. I was thinking about the uh, prairie dog metaphor or prairie dog story that Susie was giving us at the start of the uh, the course, which is, you know, the first prairie dog who comes up gets gets shot in the hunting thing. Um, But at the same time, you know, Thinking about actual prairie dogs, one of the really interesting things is, or at least that, that has been studied in those populations in particular, is that prairie dogs have group altruism, and they exhibit altruism in, in their sort of little prairie dog societies, which is to say, that first prairie dog is going up aware of the risk of being eaten, um, and is doing it anyway in order to protect everybody else or like make the rest of the group's time better. You know, when they study that biologically, they talk about it in terms of passing on the genes of the family group rather than than like the selfish individual gene, but in this case, literally taking a bullet for the team. Um, I think that is our role. We have to say stuff that, you know, may, may draw some fire, even if it, even if it does so, because it's our, it's our job to make sure that everybody runs better. Now, if you were in a bad group, group environment or organizational environment, you just wouldn't do it because the actual fire would be actual fire and it wouldn't be worth it wouldn't be worth the effort or you wouldn't consider the group worth saving but in a in a positive work environment it's like nothing that bad is going to come out of this it's worth doing to make sure that everybody gets better if the leadership will allow that to happen i think that uh, linkedin is full of articles every day about toxic work environments or places where if you're new to a place and you're trying to learn is it okay to be uh, a prairie dog here? 
and say something? Or is it not okay? Sometimes that first time is the last time. Um, or, or if it is semi-successful, perhaps the organization may grow. The question is, how do you find out when you move to a new place? How do we, when you start on a new team, do you find out what those group norms are and live to survive and to thrive? How does that happen for you? How does that happen for us? So Susie, I think you're speaking to the unwritten, unspoken roles of culture. And I think that's also mentioned in the book. They're not often captured. So I love in the book, she had said something like, imagine the first time you took your partner home to meet your family, what were the things that you were whispering in their ear not to do? (laughs) (laughs) And so with people coming into your organization, what would you whisper not to do? You know, it's really interesting. Duke University, when you start out in the School of Nursing, you get three mentors. One is for curriculum. One is for um, promotion and tenure, and one is for culture. That is the only place I've ever heard of that being done. And for the, for the rest of us, as we've moved around, a lot of times you are left to your own devices to figure out what is the culture here. That people may or may not whisper in your ear what to do, what not to do at a faculty meeting. When they ask for feedback, do they really mean that or not? And I think you, you sit many of us sit quietly to see what does that really mean here? Um, if one is uninitiated and grow up in a family as uh, Jenny says she did and I did, which is uh, you were speaking at the dinner table, uh, first person, first liar didn't stand a chance. You better have good material or you didn't get to speak and you're used to speaking and speaking your mind. That is not okay in a lot of places. So uh, finding that out the hard way is, is a very interesting experience. And not that it takes if you've been raised this way or it's now you know, imprinted in DNA, one still continues to speak. But so many of us have been socialized this way and we're trying to fight against it. The other thing is, I think we've been socialized to whisper in each other's ears. And yet, so what is the impact of actually sharing those unwritten rules? Because I think highlighting what's malfunctioning in a culture from someone who doesn't belong in that culture would be very interesting. I mean, I would throw out a hard and fast rule, which is to say that going into a family or an organization, the more hidden rules that have to be whispered to you, the more toxic that organization is. I mean, talk about, you know, I know people call it the missing stare problem, right? Where Absolutely. everybody who works there you know, knows that this is an issue, but somebody who doesn't know about it is going to fall victim to it. Is that like on a staircase, there's a stair that's not good and... There's a stare that, that's not good, yeah, um, and that's talked about particularly in terms of people people who are like serial harassers, where like everybody in the organization knows about it, but other people don't know that. What book are you reading, James? <laughs> I'm very on the internet, in in all caps. Yeah, I've I've heard of that too. In James's defense, I would feel that way about like you know somebody said uh, going into a family, like what are the things you have to whisper in people's ear about interacting with your family? You know, a lot of this stuff is just like the water that you swim in, but. If you have a family where it's like, oh, you can't say this to uncle so-and-so, and you can't talk about that with this person, and, and really don't bring this stuff up, and don't talk about this like, like that may seem normal because it's your family, but at the same time, if you've got a thousand of those, you might have a toxic family. You know, I like to think that I don't, 
going into my family, I'd just be like, there's nothing you could do to make anyone in this room that mad at you. You might feel embarrassed, but honestly, they don't care. They, they know you haven't grown up with us. So I, I would say the more hidden things there are like that, like that's, that's, a, that's certainly a yellow flag, if not a, if not a red flag. I was thinking about when you're talking about the hidden rules or the unspoken rules about a really nice example of that from one of my mentors at Mass General Hospital, Gail Alexander, who ran a beautiful orientation for new graduate nurses. And one of the things that she always told them was how to navigate as a new graduate nurse when you saw something that wasn't exactly done according to the book and how to not bring that up in a way that made you look you know, made you stick out from the crowd, but still kept you doing the right thing. And she gave very explicit instructions how the new graduate nurse should handle it. And I think the basic point was always do the right thing yourself. And if you see something that doesn't look right to you, don't just announce it in a way that puts your preceptor on the spot. I was very impressed with that. And I, I never forgot it. It was, it was a really great way for them to assure good um, entry into this intensive care unit, knowing how to do the right thing and not stand out from the crowd and look like a, a troublemaker or a know-it-all. That is a way to cope with realizing that new people that are vulnerable are coming into a more difficult setting and not getting them shot down and not getting them shot as the prairie dog uh, early right. on or, or as the loudest duck right away and helping them to learn a little bit to navigate but to be able to say in a, an appropriate way, hmm, what's up with this? Right. I learned how to do this this way. You do it differently. Tell me, tell me what your rationale is. Tell me, tell me more about that. Great point. The, um, I'd like to, if it's a good moment, talk a little bit about the hidden rules with respect to talking about hot topics that are often uh, difficult in, in talking about diversity, such as race, class, and gender. Would that be uh, okay? I have that. I have that in my notes also. Please start us off, Jenny. I'm responding to this really interesting idea that I think we've come up with, which is like the whispered rules index or something like that. You know, <laughs> the more whispered rules that, you know, don't step here, don't step there, the more toxic the environment possibly. I just find that very humorous and very funny and useful in a way. And here's what I think is kind of interesting for us, which is if you are a member of the dominant group, which the uh, author of our book, Laura Liswood, talks about often as being white people, at least in the financial services industry that she's in, and often white men in the financial services industry. But I'll, I'm just going to include myself because I really come from a pretty privileged background and, and a you know, well-educated family and all the rest. And I think I have falsely believed at a number of times in my life that I got where I got because of my own attributes. And I certainly worked hard, but there's lots of people who worked just as hard as I did and, and didn't, weren't given the same chances. So I want to acknowledge that. But one of the things that I think is tricky for people of privilege is, one, it's awkward to talk about race, class, and gender, but B, we might not even be aware that we're not talking about it. And so the model that I was familiarized with by my colleague, Erica Foldy from New York University Wagner School of Public Service, that's really helped me is thinking about race cognizance. And this could be the same for gender cognizance or, or class cognizance or whatever, but I'm going to take the race cognizance example for a minute. On one end of the continuum is high race cognizance that looks like bigotry. So people who are bigots are highly aware of race and talk about it a lot. 
In the middle of the continuum is sort of the colorblindness approach, which is we're all the same underneath, uh, our skin color doesn't matter, our ethnic background doesn't matter, everybody deserves to be treated equally, we should, we're all the same. And then the other far end of the continuum is race cognizance of a different kind, which is uh, we're aware of race, differences are discussable, ethnic background differences are discussable, and we're going to take those differences as interesting and valuable in the same way that we might with interprofessional differences being interesting and valuable. To me, what's really hard is I want to be someone who can discuss race differences, gender differences, class differences. I'm going to just stick with race right now. But what I've noticed is when I bring up racial difference as a white woman who's a relatively high up in my organization, that can land on people as uncomfortable, unwelcome, something what that Erica Foldy in her research describes as spotlighting. I might spotlight somebody's racial identity and they were just thinking of themselves as a nurse right at that moment and weren't thinking of the fact that they were a Filipino nurse. And they might be like, hey, what does that have to do with anything? But I feel like the more I don't discuss race, the more that topic remains silenced and not open. Uh, it's so interesting because it, it does remind me of um, you know, the movement of feminism. And I think this is so interesting, Jenny, because for me, having experience, and it could be generational differences, but if I could just tell a story about Gianna, my 12-year-old daughter, who I took to a conference, and it was around, um, it was a Filipino conference, and I gave the keynote, and after me, another keynote went on, and she was very empowering, saying that we're all equal. And Filipino nurses, correct? Filipino yes. nurses, yeah, and that we as Filipinos are equal. And, um, and the entire audience was just round, like they were so happy and excited and so supportive. And there was this great energy in the room feeling empowered. And Gianna, my 12 year old looks at me and she says, mom, I thought we were equal. And mm. the impact of stating the inequality, I think was not good for her, for somebody who lives equality. I mean, she doesn't see the inequality in her, in her life and her world. And, and, you know, one can argue there is inequality that exists and she needs to know and understand that. But in her world, she, I just wonder what the impact is of her now functioning in her own daily activities, feeling unequal. Or that there was even a possibility that she might not be equal. Right. It was, it was a whole foreign concept. What do you mean? Yeah. And, and so, so I said, sorry, feminism, because she did this. She had the same reaction to that, seeing the, the women marching recently. Mm -hmm. So Janice, I'm curious. I would assume that that means that you and Alex Ramos, who's Puerto Rican, mm -hmm. uh, your husband, have somehow protected her from or or not protected, but your own actions and your own approach and perhaps uh, the diversity of, albeit um, relatively high socioeconomic status, but the diversity of the school that she's in yes. somehow has masked this other reality. I just wonder what, as we I'm think about sure rules, like what are the hidden values that are good or, or empowering I, that you're conveying? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think there's an appropriateness to when it's discussed. I mean, we we do we definitely are not Erica Foldy's terms, we are not colorblind. We definitely talk about different races and, you know, the differences in gender and that sort of thing, but not in a way where it's unequal, you know, in, in a way where there's fairness yet, but still talking about the facts of of inequality, if that makes sense. So I'm not sure. I mean, it could be just her exposure and, and generationally too. I feel like they're... The, their generation is just Mm -hmm. much more accepting of minorities uh, in general. So I have, I have a couple thoughts. One, one is that Jenny mentioned, obviously your, your family's doing very well for themselves. And this could sort of be a Buddha leaving the gates of the, of the castle moment. I was a sixth grade teacher in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is a, is not a well-off community for, for several years. And I was a fifth and sixth grade teacher in Roxbury, Massachusetts, which is not necessarily a super privileged community. And I would say that my students who are 11 and 12 and 10, you know, about the age of your daughter, were extremely aware that they were not going to be treated the same based on their race, based on their gender. In particular, they had sort of a whole missing stairs awareness of their own about even the teachers within the school. If Mrs. Such and Such yells at you, keep in mind she yells at all the kids who are Spanish speakers or and she doesn't do the same thing for the Portuguese kids. It's good that possibly, you know, Gianna's first experience of this is not a deeply traumatic one in the way that I think for most kids, their first experience of what this looks like in the world is, is deeply, is, tends to be something deeply traumatic. Like, hey, I thought we were all equal. And then something horrifying happens where you realize some teachers went on a power trip and I got thrown in handcuffs and, you know, thrown on the ground as a 10 year old. The fact that Gianna sort of has a chance to not have that be the worst way of entering into a conversation about the world's not going to treat you equally. We're trying, but we're not there. I think I can maybe add to that, too. And I think James makes a great point. And I'm really glad that Gianna isn't experiencing this in a most traumatic way. But I think what's more insidious is that, you know, many people who are POCs or based on their gender or social economic background are just experiencing more microaggressions and that's a constant exposure to show them that they're different. I think that could be potentially more damaging than this Mm. one big traumatic experience. Absolutely. I think my worry is that like, you know, these, the groups who are, I guess, in this book described as the mouse in, in the environment is just disproportionately burdened with having to navigate this world and how else would they have time to focus on other things that help them be able to speak up and be successful and be able to just live their life without this extraordinary burden. Yeah. And I mean, especially in terms of, you know, receiving speaking up, just like I said in, you know, my example with the teacher reacts differently to different kids from different places. What if, you know, I, as a, as a white dude in a nursing situation, if I can speak up, and, you know, the person will listen to me. And if somebody else who's who's different does that, they're going to get creamed, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, may right. be, it may be very different. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think we've had a, a nice, robust discussion on these ideas of speaking up and differential power things and just through race, through gender, through position in healthcare. 
do we have a take-home thought from each of us maybe to close out this session? <laughs> the prairie dog. <laughs> well, I'll I'll share. This is Jenny. As I read The Loudest Duck, my big takeaway is guarding against or trying to wake myself up from time to time of unawareness of how my power slash privilege slash background may blind me to the disproportionate challenge faced by others in exactly the same situation I'm in. So when I don't understand why somebody's not doing something, I should consider the fact that that situation may look, feel, and be very different for them. Yeah, I feel like the the most important takeaway is this idea of self-awareness or or even mindfulness where you just have to be aware of the wake that you're leaving behind you. The other thing that I, I'm thinking about as a takeaway is I literally had a conversation with someone yesterday. Their university is having a, a mandatory training on literally microaggressions, as you were saying, Grace, and how that you know, can affect their, their students who are more vulnerable. He's a you know, white man in his 60s, and he didn't really want to go. And he's pretty good about this stuff, you know, asking people their preferred pronouns in class, being sort of enthusiastic about it because it makes people feel welcome. Like, so he's, he's pretty good on the, on the scale of things. And he didn't want to do it because he felt like he knew this stuff already. Like, why does he have to go to a thing about microaggressions? And my response was, you know, you're a leader type person. People will probably listen to what you have to say. And even if you're already pretty good on this, if you just go and be a good first follower and listen to the people who are talking and act enthusiastic and play like you want to be there. All of the other people who look like you, who genuinely don't want to be there and think this stuff is crap, may be slightly less inclined to bitch about it and may be slightly more inclined to actually be receptive to the material. So like the best thing you can do is just go and listen and be enthusiastic and be aware that people are going to follow you where they might not follow someone else who doesn't look like you. You can do a lot of good just by being a good follower here. So that was that was sort of my my thought from all this. Good advice. Nice thoughts. You know, reading and hearing all this, my big takeaway is I can only control my own actions and I can't control other people's actions. So I guess in my own leadership role, I would like to be much, much more aware of the different levels and nuances of diversity and do my best to empower everybody. So for example, you know, I was just reading an online blog and, you know, there was a discussion on this blog about, you know, what are some of the team building activities that's meant to build a team and bring everyone together introduces unconscious ways of excluding certain groups. So for example, organizing a golfing excursion, you know, could be (laughs) unintentionally excluding certain groups that were historically excluded from this Mm. group. So perhaps as I go forth and build my team, I would like to be much, much more cognizant and aware and actively working on things that really make this a team environment that has true diversity. Similar to that, I was thinking that a lot of the issues that we're thinking about are on the unconscious level. And to try to see what we're not seeing is difficult because we're not looking at it. It may be right in front of us. So just want to look for opportunities to be more aware of the things that I might potentially be missing. When I started reading the book, I got to page 10 when I started getting ideas about what I might do. One of those things might be to ask more explicitly for people that are joining us in our courses about things like 
dietary preferences so that people don't feel excluded when there's significant religious holidays happening. We can't keep track of that, but we could be more open to inquiring about it so that we're not inadvertently making people feel uncomfortable or make it be a burden for them to have to bring something up. So I want to say, I just thought the loudest deck was an interesting expose moving us forward in time because I started nursing at a time when literally I was the class where we would uh, stand up when a physician walked in the room, don't tell the patients what their medications are. And we were being taught in school, do tell the patient what their medications are. So I want to thank everybody for being here. It was delightful. I think we moved forward very rapidly. Well, I don't know, rapidly 40 years is, is uh, a difference, but I think that it's neat that books are being published now to talk about these kinds of things and that IPE is becoming a reality for us in medicine and nursing and allied health. It's a good time to be alive. Thank you.